1: interrupt this broadcast. Before it was history, it was news. It
2: appears as though something has happened in the motor. I station. said,
3: those are shots.
2: Man
4: on the moon. We copy it down, Eagle.
3: I shall resign the presidency, effective at noon tomorrow.
1: I'm Bill Curtis. It's been said that breaking news becomes the first draft of history. What's overlooked is how deeply we relied on broadcast journalists who met the adrenalized demands of those moments, often with courage and daring. Broadcast journalism has a simple, sober purpose, to keep the public informed through the best and worst of times. But the consequence of that labor is profound. As legendary newsman Walter Cronkite wrote, The free press is the central nervous system of a democratic society. No true democracy can exist without it. History has borne out that wisdom. But before it was history, it was news.
0: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes.
5: There really is no place like home.
0: That's why every car we sell is CarMax-certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive. And start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. The way car buying should be.
6: This is Richard C. Haudelet speaking from London. The Allied Forces landed in France early this morning. I watched the first landing barges hit the beach exactly on the minute of H-hour. I was in the 9th Air Force Marauder flying at 4500 feet along 20 miles of the invasion coast. Our mission was to plaster the invasion beach and some coastal fortifications with bombs seven minutes before our assault parties came ashore. Light flights began to come up after us, little bells of fire off to our right and to our left. Some heavy flak off to our left, not near at all, firing only sporadically. The flights ahead of us dropped their bombs. The guns on the ships offshore resumed fire. The bombs and the shells burst together on the target. There were sheets of flame down below, then rolling balls of brown and black smoke. Four and a half thousand feet up, our plane was rocked by the concussion. And we got the stench of the explosives.
5: I'm Brian Williams. On June 6th of 1944, over 150,000 Allied troops took part in the boldest and bloodiest and most decisive invasion in all of modern warfare. Just after dawn, they stormed the heavily fortified beaches of Normandy, France. They prevailed despite staggering losses and withering German fire. While working for Edward R. Murrow at CBS Radio, correspondent Richard C. Hodelet aired the first eyewitness account of that seaborne invasion.
6: About five miles off the French coast, we saw a plane in a steep dive laying a smokescreen. Just about the same minute, the pilot said he saw fires on the shore. I looked as hard as I could, and there, down to the left, were some naval vessels. They looked like cruisers firing broadsides onto the shore. Their guns built, flame, and smoke. And just then we saw down below and all left dozens and scores of white streaks as the assault boats raced over the blue water to the beach, leaving their white wakes stretched out behind them. As we turned away from the target, we saw the boats hit the beach. The fact that we got there simultaneously with the invading troops and left in a minute make it impossible to draw any far-reaching conclusions on how the battle is going i return you now to the United States.
5: While still a young man, Hotelet was already a veteran reporter working for United Press International covering the war, which included his arrest and imprisonment by the Nazis in 1941 on suspicion of espionage. But it was the medium of radio with all its intimacy and immediacy that truly came of age during those war years.
7: One of the Wonderful stories that Dick Hodlet would share was about the importance of radio during World War II.
5: Michael Friedman was the general manager of CBS Radio Networks.
7: Dick would make it a point to say that people listened to the radio religiously because everybody had a vested interest in every word that was coming out of the radio, particularly with these news broadcasts. You had a son a husband, a nephew, a daughter, an uncle, a father who was in the war. And this marked the first time that anybody in the world was receiving reports in real time. And the reporters became heroes insofar as people were receiving the first word of battles from them. And Dick said that people here effectively hung on their every word, although he said he didn't realize this truly until he returned from World War II, because he didn't receive nor did others on the Murrow team much listener reaction while they were reporting from the battles. They did their jobs and they did them as well as they could, and they followed Murrow's simple directions for how to report. And when they came home, they began to realize the impact that they all had on American radio listeners.
5: Richard C. Hotelet was among a group of print reporters who were hired and trained for radio and assigned to cover the various fronts in the war effort across the continent. Their leader was the legendary Edward R. Murrow, who was then the European news chief for CBS News. In fact, the band of brave correspondents became known as Murrow's boys. Murrow himself had no prior experience as a journalist or broadcaster. But he could tell a story, and his delivery, his power of description, his eye for detail, his ability to convey all of it in the drama of the moment made him the gold standard of his era.
8: This is Trafalgar Square. The noise that you hear at the moment is the sound of the air raid sirens. I'm standing here just on the steps of St. Martin's in the fields. A searchlight just burst into action
2: off in the distance.
8: One single
9: beam sweeping the sky above me now. He was a lecturer prior to his broadcast career. Now, he wasn't a print journalist. He was a, uh, a, a public speaker. So he did have experiences speaking to public audiences, in-person audiences, about his observations.
5: Broadcast historian Dr. Michael Beal.
9: He was a world traveler. His first job at CBS that they gave him was uh, to arrange for event coverage in Europe, sometimes arranging for musical concerts. He was off in Budapest, arranging for a children's choir contest at the point when he was traveling back through Vienna and Hitler was coming down from Berlin to Vienna. And so he happened to be there at the moment of the Anschluss. When the person that he had hired to be in Vienna, William L. Shira was back in London. And so that's how accidentally Morrow got on the air doing his first news broadcast. This is Edward Murrow speaking from Vienna. It's now
8: nearly 2.30 in the morning and Herr Hitler has not yet arrived. No one seems to know just when he will get here. It's of course obvious after one glance at Vienna that a tremendous reception is being prepared. And we're planning to bring you an eyewitness account of Herr Hitler's
2: entry into Vienna sometime tomorrow. We return you now to America. He, He found out he liked it. He found out he was good at it. So he continued to do it. I have a great respect for Ed Morrow and I don't think we've produced anything as good since the
5: veteran abc anchorman howard k smith started out as one of murrow's boys
2: well murrow was a young man on the on the executive escalator whose voice chords were touched by angels he had a beautiful voice he knew how how to use it he wrote well he wrote beautifully or dictated beautifully often didn't write at all and he told the story well he really held your attention he needed uh, someone uh, uh, to work for him on the continent, so he hired Bill Shire, who was without work at that time. Then they said, well, this is not enough, we need more people. So they hired Eric Severi, they hired others, they finally hired me. And uh, they, they built a uh, team, not for prestige reasons, but because they needed help. I, I was very much impressed with him. I didn't realize he looked as, as handsome as his voice was, but he was a very handsome man. Tall, dark, brooding. I was assigned by Murrow to the Ninth Army, which is the northernmost American army, and was designated to take Berlin eventually.
5: Before his years on television and his later years as senior news analyst at NPR, Daniel Shore was among those hired by Murrow.
3: First of all, there was the, the voice and the presence. It was really quite remarkable that he could say something and it would sound like like a papal bull or something just because he had said it several of us became aware including myself that um, consciously or unconsciously we were imitating morrow's cadence and voice and trying to talk the way he talked He was the standard for what you were supposed to be in electronic journalism he had never been a newspaper man almost all of the journalists had prior wire service or newspaper careers (laughs) He had never been. He had wandered into, into journalism in a very odd way. And there's the a side of him in which, not having been a journalist himself, he acted as though he was somehow inferior to the real journalists who were us. He was always treating us with enormous respect. And when we'd come back from somewhere, the first thing that would happen would be we'd be interviewed on his 7.45 p.m. radio show. And in that interview, which was live, he went very far to give us a sense of superiority. And he really was the arbiter for us of what was ethical.
7: I actually asked Dick Hotelet if he would write down for a project that we were working on together his thoughts about Murrow. I think of Ed Murrow in superlatives, a skilled, tenacious reporter and a brave man, a fine human being, as a boss, Murrow laid down no rules, made no suggestions as to style or content. He demanded only a clear and where appropriate colorful presentation of fact. He was scrupulously fair, and his colleagues accepted his choices without complaint. He led by example, not command. Murrow's usually furrowed brow expressed a pessimistic side, perhaps to guard against indulging a nationwide audience that wanted good news. Yet when he smiled, it was like a sunrise. He knew his own worth, but was not arrogant or overbearing. He had a sense of theater, as in his stress on this is London, as well as in a Churchillian sonority that often marked his speech. Murrow's physical bravery was matched by moral courage that rang out in his television documentaries. His style was serious. Long experience at the microphone did not make him casual. He saw his broadcast as a service to the American people.
5: Late in the war, by 1944, CBS and NBC both had an experienced roster of reporters as they approached the biggest story thus far in the conflict, the Allied invasion of Nazi-occupied France. At 12.37 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, wire services started sending bulletins that German news agencies had reported an invasion.
10: We interrupt our program to bring you a special broadcast. The German news agency Transocean said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. I repeat, the German news agency Transocean said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. There was no Allied confirmation. The Associated Press recorded the broadcast which said the invasion had begun from the West and that the French port of Le Havre was being shelled. Le Havre lies 100 miles from the English port of Portsmouth and is 80 miles south of the English coastal town of New Haven. German naval forces off the coast are engaged in a battle with enemy landing craft, the broadcast said. The German news agency said the Allied invasion operations began with the landing of airborne troops in the area of the mouth of the Seine River. I repeat, however, that there is no Allied confirmation of this claim. We return you now to your regular scheduled broadcast.
5: While we now know that the first elements of the invasion were indeed underway, disinformation during wartime was commonplace, and early reports took care to point out that a German news agency might not be trustworthy. As CBS News chief Paul White warned his staff shortly before D-Day, quote, winning the war is a hell of a lot more important than reporting it. This was CBS Radio News anchor Robert Trout.
10: Now, it should be remembered, of course, that the Germans are quite capable of faking this entire series of reports. Their main reason for doing so, in addition to trying to smoke out Allied plans, would be to try to start a premature uprising by the resistance movements along the Channel Coast. But the French and the Belgians and the Dutch have all been warned about this possibility repeatedly. And you will recall that Prime Minister Winston Churchill, some time ago, warned that we could expect false alarms or diversionary feints before the big show began.
6: Ladies and gentlemen, this is the NBC Newsroom in New York, where we are standing by to bring you the news of the reported operations against the continent by the Allies, which only the German radio has so far announced.
5: The famous NBC network chimes, the three notes still in use today, included a fourth for special circumstances, a cue to NBC stations and listeners that something was urgent. And that fourth chime got a lot of use in the early morning hours of June 6, 1944.
6: The National Broadcasting Company intends to continue with its network service coast to coast throughout the rest of this night. This is our official notification to stations affiliated with NBC that we will continue broadcasting throughout the remainder of these nighttime hours. This is the National Broadcasting Company.
5: We will continue our story in a moment. Okay, picture this. It's
6: Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
0: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is
5: Brian Williams. Welcome back. Allied radio networks finally receive shortwave confirmation of the invasion in a statement from General Eisenhower's headquarters in Great Britain at 3.33 a.m. Previously composed by the Supreme Allied Commander... As the June 6, 1944, Order of the Day, it was read aloud on the air by Edward R. Murrow. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied
8: Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty loving people everywhere march with you. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. This order was distributed to assault elements after their embarkation. It was read by appropriate commanders to all other troops in the Allied Expeditionary Force.
5: Less than one hour later, 4.17 a.m. Eastern Time, Americans received their first eyewitness report from Normandy. A print reporter named Wright Bryan of the Atlanta Journal-Newspaper, who had been on board a C-47 transport plane dropping paratroopers into France, filed a report for NBC Radio. When the plane returned to England minutes later, he quickly made his way to the BBC and began broadcasting his account there, thereby scooping the 600 other reporters who were covering Normandy that day.
10: The first eyewitness report of action along the Channel by NBC's own battle reporter, Wright Bryan. We again take you overseas.
4: This is Wright Bryan speaking from London. In the first hour of D-Day, by British double summer time, or a little more than an hour before D-Day began by Greenwich mean time, the first spearhead of Allied forces for the liberation of Europe landed by parachute in northern France. I rode across the English Channel with the first group of planes from Troop Carrier Command to take our fighting men into Europe. Just before we left French soil for the return trip to England, I watched from the rear door of our plane as 17 American paratroopers jumped with their arms, ammunition, and equipment into German-occupied France. As we headed back towards the English coast, we saw tracers arching through the air behind us and a steady parade of Allied planes moving out over the course we had just navigated to strengthen the ground forces we had left below. As our strong ship Snooty crossed above the breakers into the air of France, the paratroopers were on their feet, each adjusting his packs and snapping his ripcord over the static line, a cable which ran along the center of the cabin ceiling so that each chute would open automatically as its wire jumped through the door. You all set, asked the colonel. The jump lights, a small bank of signal lamps, were gleaming beside the door. They blinked as the pilot threw his switch. And before I could look up, they began jumping. I wanted to know how long it would take the 18 men to jump. I tried to count 101, 102, 103 to estimate the number of seconds. Before I had counted to 10 seconds, may have been 11 or 12, but no more, our passengers had left us. As soon as I had watched the jumps from the rear door, I ran back to the front of the ship and looked straight back from the glass dome. Tiny streams of tracer bullets were curving upward from the ground, but they were well behind us. One of the pilots in our squadron had unwittingly left on his formation lights, and the tracers came closest to his wingtips. But we saw nothing that looked like heavy ACAC except in the far distance. We were over France only 11 minutes. With our ships lightened by unloading their cargo, we picked up speed and streaked for home. The battle of Europe had begun, and our squadron had delivered the first Allied foot soldiers to their scene of action. This is Wright Bryan in London returning you to New York.
5: In the meantime, George Hicks, the 38-year-old London bureau chief of the Blue Radio Network, which later became ABC, was on the deck of the USS Ancon carrying troops to the beaches at Normandy and recording the sounds of battle with a 75-pound contraption known as a record graph on loan from the Navy. Eleven hours later, just before midnight at the end of D-Day, the major radio networks aired Hicks' dramatic account, complete with the sound of German bombers overhead and the Ancon's deck guns blasting away. It was recorded in real time, and for his time, Hicks was the living definition of cool under fire.
11: Our own ship has just gave its warning whistles, and now flak is coming up in the sky in streamers from the warships behind us. There's heavy firing now just behind us, and anti aircraft bursts in the sky, and bombs bursting. Well, that's the first time we shot our guns. All planes are going overhead. That baby was plenty low. Heavy fire from the naval warship. As well as twenty millimeter and forty millimeter tracer. Well, the sounds you just heard, perhaps the best of two of the bombs. Here we go again. Another plane's come over. They're staring into the clouds before they burst. Another one coming over. Let it move to that long-term. Why? the sky. Came down in the slow ring now, just off our port side in the sea. Smoke and flame there. You said it. I I'll make it with me. Now, ten past twelve, the beginning of June seventh, nineteen forty four. This is George Hicks speaking. I now return you to the United States.
5: George Hicks report hailed at the time as the most thrilling broadcast of the war was groundbreaking in another way. Until it aired, NBC and CBS had mostly banned taped recordings from their newscasts for fear that it would be misleading to the public. But the sheer immediacy and unimpeachable integrity of Hicks' account changed the rules, the broadcast standards from then on.
12: This is Charles Collingwood. We are on the beach today, on D-Day.
5: CBS News correspondent Charles Collingwood was embedded with Allied troops along a 50-mile stretch of French coastline.
12: These boys are are apparently having uh, a pretty tough time in here on the beaches. It's not very pleasant. Uh, It's exposed, and it must have been a rugged fight to get it. It's an absolutely incredible and fantastic sight. I don't know whether it's possible to... Describe it to you or not. It's late in the afternoon. The sun is going down. The sea uh, is is choppy, and the beach is lined with men and materials and uh, guns, trucks, vehicles of all kinds. Uh, On either side of us, there are pillars of smoke perhaps a mile, two miles away, which is rising from enemy shelling. And further back, we can see The smoke and results of our own shelling. Uh, Looking behind us, we can see the big ships. This incredible sight is still going on as more and more gliders are towed in by the C-47, going over the seawall, disappearing out of sight in apparently a wide sweep and dropping their, their, their men somewhere back there. The place even smells like an invasion. It has a curious odor which uh, we always associate with modern war. is the smell of oil and high-explosive and burning things. We're backing away from the beach now, and soon we'll be out in the soft spray, and it'll be impossible for us to broadcast anymore.
8: Well, that was a recording made by Charles Collingwood at a French beach on the afternoon of D-Day. We return you now to the United States.
5: As multiple reports from Normandy's beaches were now filtering back to London, Edward R. Murrow summarized the situation on air toward the end of what would become known as the longest day.
8: There is no indication that the Germans have put in a counterattack. Tonight we were told the names of some of the American ships participating in the bombardment. The Augusta is there, so is the Tuscaloosa. Likewise, the Nevada. The Japanese tried to sink her at Pearl Harbor. All day, Allied heavy bombers have been operating in support of the ground troops. They have encountered no fighter opposition. As a matter of fact, the refusal of the Germans to commit their air force is one of the principal subjects of conversation here tonight. The reputation of the German armies is still considerable, and there is no disposition to discount their power to hit back. But the general impression is that we are now in a position to start pouring the material ashore.
5: It was left to the president, the commander-in-chief of all U.S. forces, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, to deliver a final and sober benediction on the day's events. At 10 o'clock that night, two and a half years after the attack on Pearl Harbor, less than nine months before his own death, the president turned to the medium where his voice had become so familiar, offering a prayer for America's fighting men and American ideals.
10: Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States,
13: my fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And so, in this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization. ...and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and cruel. Give strength to their arm, stoutness to their heart, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong, he may hurl back our forces... Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. With thy blessing we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogances lead us to the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men, and a peace that will let all men Live in freedom, reaping the just reward of their honest toil. Thy will be done, Almighty God.
5: Amen. I'm Brian Williams. For more information about this episode and our series, please visit our website, We Broadcast.org now please listen to this special message from bill curtis about the great work of the broadcasters foundation of america
1: every day broadcasters bring us the information and entertainment that enriches our lives and often saves lives it's not only the person on air it's the producers engineers management sales marketers camera operators and more for more than 70 years, the Broadcasters Foundation of America, a 501c3 charity, has been a safety net providing financial assistance to broadcasters and their families in acute need from a debilitating illness, tragic accident, or unthinkable catastrophe. Whether a retired broadcaster who can't afford life-saving medications, a family struggling to make ends meet after a crippling accident or severe damage from a hurricane to the home of a broadcaster in need, the Broadcasters Foundation has always been there to help those in our industry who need it most. Now more than ever, the Broadcasters Foundation is in need of your donations to continue its charitable mission. Please consider a donation today at broadcastersfoundation.org. That's broadcastersfoundation.org. On behalf of all our broadcasters in all areas of our industry, we thank you.